Welcome back to another glorious episode of A Spirited Debate. The crew have dusted off the glasses, dropped in some ice, and pulled the corks, and we are ready, as always, to pour a few drinks and find a way to rattle each other's cages. Follow if that's your thing, like if you want. Fuck it, we're just happy you're listening, and that's all that matters to us. So as our sound guy cues up the music, grab yourself a drink, sit back, relax, and join us for... Just skip over. I'm trying to contribute to the discussion. It would be wrong. They would absolutely be wrong. If you thought that our debates were going to be any different, then jokes on you. I thought you'd get better. And you guys came with the same shit. We are on our way. I'm I'm double fisting, actually. Um, So I thought that was on Friday night. Dad always says you never get better by playing people worse than you. It ain't going to so, take somebody long to get bingo so, here. Hey, let's go ahead and unwrap this present <laughs> so, uh, and let the I, debate begin. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of A Spirited Debate. Uh, got another banging one for you this time. We actually invited back a guest. Loved having him on the show six months ago. Thought it was time to bring him back. Let him jump in the deep end again. Uh, so we are happy and proud to have Tyler Martinolich, the film commissioner for Tampa Bay, back on the show. And you're probably figuring we're going to be discussing movies, you know, because that's who he is. And that's, you know, we enjoy movies. Maybe, maybe not. We're going to wait and just let everybody find out what happens. But we do have him on the show. Excited that he's here. And so how is everybody doing today? Does everybody just wait for me now? Is that yes. what Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we got to do your, yeah, yeah. Bring your game face, remember? Yeah. I'm going to start taking longer and longer pauses to make it more awkward. Awkward, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Tyler, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back, guys. Absolutely. Happy that you're here. Uh, Hopefully everybody brought a drink. And so we will jump into that first. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, Tyler, just so you know, we actually had a guest on the show. Uh, She is a mixologist for a website, fancysips.com. And I'll be honest, the drink I chose was actually one she mentioned. So I do want to say thank you to Diana for mentioning that on the show when she was here. And I decided to try it this time. So I will go first. I decided to do the rosemary infused old fashioned. And yes, Haas, I made my own rosemary infused Whoa. simple syrup naturally. Ooh. And then put that together with some Angel's Envy, a little bitters, wrapped up a little orange peel. I, I thought about what, what did she say with the Negroni? What is it? Uh, caramelizing the oil in the orange peel for the Negroni. I thought about doing that, but I was like, nope, not burning the house down. So I just <laughs> tossed the, the orange peel in there. And that's what I am doing. So it is a rosemary infused old fashioned. And now, it is very tasty. I have to ask, did you grow your own rosemary? No. You'll say, you uh, say yes, I'm going to come down there and slap you. <laughs> <laughs> no. I only ask because I do have a huge rosemary bush outside the uh, front porch here. So uh, I, I mean, I'm ha- going to one up you and I'm going to use homegrown rosemary. No, you're not. Don't even lie. No, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, 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 basil, I've grown basil, but not rosemary. So, but I, I, when she mentioned it, I was like, I want to try it. The other one, and, and I don't know, Haas, if she sent you the recipe about the orange juice and the coffee. I was looking up recipes for that. Couldn't find anything that stuck out. So I was like, I'm just going to go with this. But that's what I did. Rosemary infused old fashioned. So uh, Tyler, I'm going to let you go next. Since you are the guest, I apologize for kind of superseding you. But uh, no, what are you all. drinking? I- I am just drinking straight gin today. Uh, it is Graywell gin, which comes from, uh, I think, Baja, California. It's a little weird. It's got uh, hints of lime and sea kelp in it. And if you're wondering what sea kelp tastes like, it basically tastes like a brine. So it's like a pickle juice mixed with gin is the best way to describe this this particular gin. So it's uh, one of my favorites. And that's that's right out of the bottle, not mixed with anything. Right out of the bottle over ice. Interesting. Uh, last time you're on the show, you also drank straight up. So is that your preference when it comes to alcohol? 
It is. If I'm going to drink alcohol, I want to taste the alcohol and not a bunch of other ingredients. Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. All right. So gin, sea kelp. That's an interesting one. Uh, is that something you can get local or did you have to order that and have it shipped? Uh, I had a, a groveling client uh, thank me for a, a job that we did a couple of months ago and he sent me a case of this gin. It was his favorite before. Uh-huh. Uh, and I've been drinking it since. A case. Damn, we need the, we need those kinds of groveling clients. Yeah, right. Where, where do we meet friends like that? I don't know. Doing it wrong. Doing it wrong. Uh, all right. Seek I'm help. schlepping around with you lot. What's going on? I, I was going to say. I think I think all we get now from Grinch is you know half-ass run, you know miss miss runs of you know beer. So and facial hair. We get facial not, hair. Not that we you know not that we're not grateful. That's right. I'm just yeah. saying. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I mean, I haven't seen facial hair on you in like. 25 years so it's a nice change of pace it's been more than that probably but has it okay (laughs) uh grinch what are you drinking today well uh as it turns out uh mrs grinch was following the gram and saw fancy sips as well post their uh what is this thing called it's the i think it's the honeydew margarita honeydew melon Uh, i'm interested because i saw that this week yeah yeah so uh I don't have the the whole shebang here of the steps, but you do have honeydew melon, you got lime juice, simple syrup, and then tequila. And uh, yeah, it's an easy drinker. That's for sure. Very tasty. Fancy sips nailed it again. Well, at least one of the people in your house does day drink, uh, <laughs> even if she doesn't. <laughs> and I and I saw on the on the old gram there, liked by a spirited debate. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, all right, honeydew melon margarita, fantastic. Uh, Haas, what did you bring to the table today? Uh, I am. Uh, I was. I was uh, surfing one of the bourbon message boards that I'm on on Reddit, and this guy put up something called a Thunderbird. It's bur- equal parts bourbon, pineapple juice, orange juice, and amaretto. And I'm I'm using the Bullet bourbon for this. And uh, yeah, it's it's good. It's good. I don't I don't know if I would seek it out, but I'm not. I wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't kick it out of bed. Would this be on your cocktail flow app or did you find this it elsewhere? Wasn't. It wasn't no? actually. No, okay. no, it was on. Uh, I, I So on Facebook and then on Instagram and on Reddit, I'm in different bourbon like groups or whatever. Societies or whatever. Yeah. I mean, there's a little they're just people that talk about this shit. So people boast and brag about their bars and how many bottles they have of this, whatever. What's the best bourbon and what, uh, whatever. But occasionally people talk about what kind of drinks to make. And some dude put this up and a lot of people were kind of touting it saying it was good. So I figured, fuck it and give it a, give it a roll. And so not bad, but not great. Yeah. Yeah. It's like middle, it's middle of the road. Okay. I, I like, like Tyler, I like to taste my liquor more. I should probably put more booze in it. Um, it's a little too uh, fruity for me, but yeah. It'll get you through the next two hours. It will. Indeed. And that's all that matters. Well, I mean, I made a four count. So I was about count. to ask. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Thor. I was about to ask, did he just make a single or was it a four count? No, it's four count. Okay. All right. Go ahead, Grinch. What I was going to say is, by my count, the only thing not in your bed is the four Boulevardiers just sitting there on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck that. No, it's standing on the motherfucking curb. Okay. It's not even. No. no. It's like the Haas. Come no. on, guys. Nope. nope. Just call me. Let you, me you, in. You, I'm cold. Nope. Aperol and Campari are out on the freaking curb with it. Nope. All right. Uh, all right, Mac, round us out. What are you drinking, brother? All right, so I'm going to be honest. I uh, put this together at the very last second. I went back and forth all week on what to make, and finally today rolled around. And I said, shit, I guess I need a drink. Um, so I finally used the Cocktail Flow app, I think maybe the way it's supposed to be used. 
Um, and we're still not getting paid for this motherfucker. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so opened it up, uh, went to the search. Um, we'd bought pineapple juice at some point for some reason or another. I don't know why, but I saw it in the, the pantry. So I typed in pineapple juice and came back with you know a multitude of options. Uh, but the top one was absolutely bananas. Um, it is vodka, banana liqueur, and pineapple juice. Shake it up and pour it over ice. Um, so use the Highlands vodka that I'd gotten from Flaviar out of Denver, and then the Bananas Foster's liqueur I'd purchased uh, down on Folly a couple of months back. Um, mixed it all up. Uh, like Haas, I made a four count, and it's pretty good. It looks, I mean, that could be a margarita. I don't know. With you anymore, everything looks like a margarita. Yeah, I'm just making this shit up, by the way. It's a margarita. It's actually a margarita. No. It's Fanta. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's Zima. Um, hey, don't no. Zima. Don't do that. No, no. It's uh, it's pretty good, though. Um, I would definitely recommend it. Got if you strong... like bananas. If you don't like bananas, wouldn't be in your wheelhouse because you can definitely taste the bananas in the liqueur. Well, that's what I was about to ask. I mean, you, you would have strong banana flavor, right? You'd have to be a banana yes. fan. Okay. Yeah. So, so if if Grinch was to make it, he would he'd want to throw in some absinthe, you know, to make it taste better. Ah, uh, I've got a bottle. Yeah. I can bring you. Just rinse the glass. <laughs> Just rinse the glass. All right. Well, to to all of you, as always, I say cheers. Uh, cheers. Hopefully, cheers. a good show, to Tyler. Mm. Thanks, guys. So let's jump into it. So yes, we have Tyler Martin Olich back. I apologize. I just butchered your name. You got to write the second time. It's fine. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, if you listened to the show, he was on again, one of our actually one of our more popular episodes. If you listen to that episode, you will know that he is the film commissioner for Tampa Bay, sits on the board of directors for Gasparilla International Film Festival. And so we had him on to discuss kind of the life of a film commissioner, how to get into that and so on and so forth. And this time we thought we'd bring him back because Grinch had brought something up um, probably a month ago, maybe a little more, had, had brought up a, a question or a couple of questions because his wife works in the film industry in terms of theater, working in a movie theater. I apologize. And so I guess a question had come up and he thought, you know, this would be something that would be interesting. And so I'm going to let him obviously ask that question when we get there. But before we do that, Tyler, uh, Mac obviously wants to stop me. Yeah, I, I, I want to step in here for just a second because i i want to ask the very first question that, that i think is a very important question and we've we've discussed here a lot and how do you know i wasn't gonna ask it i don't give a shit if you were gonna okay, ask it i'm asking enough. it now all right go this, for this it. call has been hijacked the um, floor is yours until i mute you <laughs> so since we have an expert you know on, on the call with us you think i'm an expert um, holy shit no. okay go ahead <laughs> can i continue now no, please. Thank you. Tyler, the film Die Hard, is that a Christmas movie or not? Nobody else can speak. I I'd like to hear Tyler's opinion. Well, it has to be a Christmas movie because the movie would not happen if it wasn't behind the premise of Christmas, right? So they're, so at, a they're at a Christmas party. Uh, they would not be at a party. It would be a completely different movie had it not been Christmas. So I think it has to be considered a Christmas film. Right. That, that it, is absolutely, vote, it is yeah. absolutely a Christmas film then. Yes. I, I stand down. I change my mind. Tyler has swayed me. He's traveling from New York to California for the purpose of what? The Christmas party. It's Christmas. The music, it's Christmas decorations about giant Christmas, Christmas teddy bear. It just happens at Christmas. <laughs> 
But that was the debate we had during that that episode was. It wasn't you, a debate, though. It, yes, it was. And yes, it was. How, it was how do you how do you justify if it's a Christmas movie, whether or not it's Christmas themed? And we made the same Christmas arguments. Time? Yeah, we made the same arguments before. Tyler, I, I'd like to apologize for him. The rest of us are adults here. Uh, well, I'm not sure what he's doing. In, in, in all fairness, in all fairness, I had already, I, I was already prepared. He he, he circumvented my, my initial strike. I, I was going to bring it up at some oh, point during okay. the podcast. So he, 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 he cut me off at the knees. But, but you know what? That's okay because, you know, we heard from the man, the myth, the legend, uh, Ty, uh, Tyler Martin Olich, and he says, yep, Die Hard Christmas Here movie. You go. Done. All right. Case closed. Die Hard Let's is put a it to bed. movie. It's on audio. You heard me say it. That's it. Tyler right. wins. You heard there it here. 37. That's it. Mac, now, Mac now has to get a diehard tattoo on his back. That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Back to your regularly scheduled programming. So uh, the first the first question I have, since the first question on the show has already been used and abused, is I'd love to know in the last six months in terms of where things were, where things are. What has the landscape for you, your job, and what you've been doing, how you've been kind of navigating that? I mean, we knew, obviously, when we talked to you back in November, what things were like in 2020. So now we're in, you know, 2021. It's May. In the last six months, what have you been doing in terms of the film industry as the commissioner dealing with that here in Tampa Bay? What's that been like for you? Well, we've been actually busier, and this is sort of counterintuitive to the moment. You know, everyone's concerned with Corona, but we've actually been busier in the last three and a half, four months than we have been in the last two years almost combined. Um, and I think that's for a variety of reasons. Um, Florida is still one of the few states that is truly open for better or worse. Um, a lot of the country still has some restrictions in place, even if they're still opening back up. Uh, there's just nothing preventing people to getting back to normal other than their own fears or the way their businesses want to be run. Personally, government has stepped out of the way. Again, better or worse, uh, I don't necessarily have an opinion on that. But because of that, we have had a ton of shoots come to the Tampa Bay area. People still need content, um, coronavirus or not. Especially if you are a commercial producer, if you are a, uh, you know, a top name brand, you got to get out there and communicate with your customers. And the best way to still do that is through a video or commercials or some other uh, traditional filmmaking technique. And people are coming to Florida to get that done. Um, I don't know if that's going to continue at pace. Uh, it might slow down as, as more states start opening up. But for right now, it's been gangbusters um, just for about every region in Florida since January. Just to put this in perspective, on a really good month um, pre-pandemic, we would do around 25, 30 productions in the Tampa Bay market a month. Since January 1st, we've been averaging 55 to 60 a month. Um, so it is, it is almost doubled uh, in some cases. So we've, we've actually uh, seen an explosion in productions. And I think there's, there's another reason, and this is sort of unique to Tampa Bay right now, um, but the, the pandemic really pushed people to advance technologically, I think, quicker than they were expecting to. Uh, I think I mentioned in the last podcast, you know, um, The Mandalorian and, and uh, for any of you out there listening who haven't seen The Mandalorian, it's, you know, one of the, the tent poles for, for Disney's new streaming service. But what made it unique in the production sense is that a lot of it was shot in what we call an LED volume screen uh, or XR technology where you extend reality from an LED screen. Uh, and a simpler way to say that is, is it's just a giant TV set uh, that happens on on the actual stage behind the actors, and it's in lieu of the traditional green screen or blue screen that you you know you'd normally see in, in post 
Um, that is where the film industry is moving. Um, Disney has a huge studio uh, in California. There's a very large one in Toronto. Um, but beyond that, there really isn't another large stage with that technology, except for in Tampa Bay. We're lucky enough to have one of the largest in the world that came online last May. And now that, that technology is becoming more and more in vogue. And more importantly, it's it's been important to the recovery of the film industry from coronavirus because you're able to film more with less hands on deck, making it safer in the idea of, of social distancing um, to, to do filming in stages like this. And because we have one, people have been coming here. Um, just huge, huge commercials in the shooting Tampa area as a result of that. So uh, shout out to Diamond View Studios who own the, uh, own the production company. Um, the actual studio itself is called View, and it's over by USF uh, or, or University of South Florida. And it's been a just a huge windfall for our market. Something like that. Now, again, in terms of like people coming to Tampa Bay, wanting a different environment to film in, different landscapes, different settings. And I know you mentioned this on the on the last uh, podcast. Was the beautiful thing about Tampa Bay is within however many square miles you called out was like you can have old South Georgia, Florida with, you know, uh, the stuff hanging off the old oak trees, or you can be at the beach. I mean, there were just so many different variations in terms of landscapes, which made it ideal to film here with something like view studios. Does that almost hinder the, the need for something like, like people don't have to do that anymore. They don't have to worry about their setting because they can go into a volumetric studio and allow it to just be recreated with game engine technology. Is that, is that a, not, not in the short term because it's it's so new of a technology and it's so expensive as a technology. Unless you really are a brand leader or um, a very high end production, uh, you're talking about thirty five plus thousand dollars a day just to rent the facility. That doesn't include you know the the manpower and the creative behind it and everything else that goes into a production. That's just to, to rent the brick and mortar space. Um, so unless you are one of those top companies, you're still in need of all the traditional locations that you would normally need to take advantage of. Um, so we're still winning that argument as far as being a destination market for filming. I think as we move in, in time, uh, the next three to five years, the technology is going to come down in cost. It's going to be um, in more people's hands. And I think at that point, we start having a weaker argument that, you know, you come to Tampa Bay because you can get so many locations. People are going to be able to facilitate and service a lot of the locations they need in front of LED volumes uh, going forward. And again, it's it's out of most people's price ranges right now, but give it five years and it'll be cost effective for most people. Okay. So it doesn't put somebody like you at risk in terms of your, your job and what you do because they no, no longer need you, right? If they're not shooting locally to the area, if they're in a studio all the time. Uh, it, it certainly makes our services less needed, um, but there's a lot of things we do, uh, you know, beyond just finding locations, everything from, you know, placing people in hotels to other logistical needs, uh, just to the marketing of the region itself. You know, we're helping, um, not that they, they need our help necessarily because they're, they're such a, an exclusive studio at this moment in time, but, you know, we're helping to get the word out that the studio even exists and connecting people with their creative team to, you know, uh, connect the dots for everybody. So we're, we're still uh, a vital organization. I just think the the need for locations is going to be a weaker argument going forward. Uh, again, probably not in the next 10 to 14, maybe even 18 months. But I think three plus years out, these studios are going to be in everyone's hands. 
Well, it's good to know you won't be obsolete. I mean, that's obviously the most important thing. Yeah, not yet. I like my job quite a bit. <laughs> can I ask? Um, yes, please. Can I ask real quick. Uh, so in terms of, uh, you know, a, a rough percentage of what you're seeing, um, I know you use the term communicate, you know, kind of broadly. Um, is it is it a cross section of everything from shows to commercials to branding, you know, and in, in sort of where that question is going is, um, are you still seeing movies kind of on pace with an intent to be put out for production or for release, regardless of what service? No, you know, I, I think I think movies and traditional scripted TV shows are are having the the hardest time getting back to normal, and there's a lag in production time that you're not seeing in other sectors. Uh, commercials are, are basically back to normal, at least in Florida. Um, unscripted TV series, or you know, another bad word for that would be a reality TV, uh, is certainly in full swing in Florida. Um, and even even some of your smaller uh, scripted shows, but if they're they're on web uh, formats, uh, they're getting back to normal. But the really big shows, so your you know new Black Panther uh, movie coming out, those are having a, a lot of issues getting started. The real problem with that is liability. Uh, it's still a big risk to have really high-end actors that are needed to drive those series or those uh, feature films forward, um, taking the risk with coronavirus still being a thing. Um, and you also have the the union component that is is more or less non it's not it's, it's a non it's a non-issue for most commercials. A lot of commercials are not union in nature. So those shows that are union, they have some really, really stringent and difficult rules, and for good reason, I think, um, to, to continue filming. And it's either too costly to do those things, or it's just not practical to do those things yet. So it has been a, a more difficult struggle to get back to work in the feature realm and the, the scripted TV series realm, whereas uh, other sectors of the entertainment industry, I think, are more or less back to normal. Yeah, that I, I'm, I'm sure all four of us probably latched onto one part of what you said there in one of our other podcasts, we had uh, Diana DeGarmo and Ace Young, who we, we all know very well. Um, there's, there's, there's some pretty clear connections there with, with us and them, which is why they're so close to us and their family, but they provided insights. When you mentioned union, um, they provided a lot of insights of what it was like for Broadway and it isn't as simple as just get the economic engine going because the things you just, you just alluded to there was, you know, there's a lot of players and getting them all on the same page to agree to move forward is not easy. Uh, so, so I think, I think we, that was a really interesting touch point for us that was explained very well in that episode that probably has its very own ecosystem within the film community. Yeah. I think the shorthand for, for most producers in the film industry now is what we're calling a COVID tax and right or wrong, you know, I think just ballpark, it's costing productions about 100000 per million dollars they spend in additional costs, whether that be uh, additional PPE uh, or just time and effort or fewer crew, which, you know, results in a slower workday. Um, it's, it's coming out more or less to about 100000 uh, for every million that's spent. And that adds up really quick if you are, again, like a Black Panther and you're, you're spending $200 million, right? That's a that's a big chunk of money that you've got to now factor in 
where's that money coming from? Are you taking it from another another resource? Is are your is your above the line getting stretched more? Um, and is it making the production itself untenable because you're slowing it down to a point where you're not going to be able to get enough scenes in with the actors you have? Because actors also have schedules, right? They're not just on the schedule of the production. They might have two, three movies booked in advance, um, and when they have to go on to the next shoot, they've got to go on to the next shoot. So if because of the the, the slow down because of COVID, if that pushes beyond the, let's say a three week period that they've negotiated to work on this one movie, well, now you've lost that actor because you can't get the scenes you need shot. Uh, you can't make your days and that actor's got to go. So then do you recast? Do you wait for them to uh, to become available again? There's a lot of calculus in play to try to figure out whether a production can move forward, um, particularly in this, this moment in time. That makes sense. Yeah, that's Grinch. Do you want to go ahead and ask your question? Uh, I, I know it's probably something that's been burning in your mind for the last month, and and now you have him here. If you want to ask, yeah. Um, and if uh, I'll I'll do a real short setup, which is um, as, as mentioned before, Mrs. Grinch works at a one screen theater. They happen to have an outdoor capability, which is why they have survived. Um, and now for at least North Carolina, they can go to fifty percent. Um, inter inside capacity. Although what you find is there's still a lot of people who, once they hear it's inside, aren't really interested. So the numbers aren't backing it up. <clears throat> but they're a, a related topic, but not the focus of what this question is going to be. Is so they're really struggling to figure out what to put on the screen to uh, to draw a crowd. Um, so like they did out, you know, Greece outdoors sold out. They have to manage circles and spacing and that kind of stuff. Um, Mamma Mia's tonight, it's sold out. So there are some, some little gems of success, but they can't get anything really. I mean, the, you know, the studios are still charging way more than they can ever recoup on. That's the setup for the conversation advance to, so, you know, what do we want to put on this screen? And the, the, the comment was, well, X movie, it doesn't matter what the movie is. And the question was, well, that's not a classic, which immediately led to the, which is our key question here. What constitutes a classic? When do you get to cross that line? <clears throat> and is a cult classic, a subset of that? <laughs> or an <laughs> like, instant what, classic? Like, right. Like what, what is a classic? Like if you just said that definition now in the movie industry, do you go black and white and you can never go forward in time or <laughs> so that that's the setup for the question. I feel like we built that up until I was like, this is the dumbest fucking question. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's actually really, it's really interesting. Um, I've, no one has ever asked me that before. Um, I, I, you know, I think there's to somebody it's, you know, old black and white movies or whatever they grew up with. But I think what defines a classic movie is it has to be, not just memorable, but I think it has to speak to a moment in time and it has to connect with an audience in a way that it uh, instantly recalls some nostalgic moment in watching that film. Um, if you can't remember a movie after you've watched it, then it's definitely not a classic film. Um, I bet most people listening to this podcast probably has a great memory, whether it's Die Hard, which I would definitely say a classic film, um, <laughs> or, you know, Goonies or Ghostbusters. There is a, a moment in those movies or go back further. Hell, let's say, uh, you know, um, Wizard of Oz. Like there's for some audience that watched that movie, 
a, a moment in that film stuck with them. It was, I don't want to say representative of a generation, but maybe it was representative of a moment in time that connected with an audience in a way that they bring that forward with them in time. And no matter when you'd ask them, you know, what do you remember that, that movie, they can recall that moment from the movie and possibly even what they were going through when they were watching it. Right. They can remember what the day was like, you know, what they were feeling, how that movie made them feel. I think that's what defines a classic film. I, I think it's really just the, the emotions that are connected between an audience and a particular movie that makes it a classic film. So, you know, when they're doing their, their newsy little spiel about movies and they say, this one will be an instant classic, your interpretation of that is, uh, I'm a, again, not, not to put words in your mouth, but I, I would assume what you're saying about something like that is that that movie has the ability to tap into that nostalgia or that moment for people so that it could obviously be a classic for people at some point, maybe not now, but when they go, oh, this movie's going to be an instant classic, that's the type of thing you think they would be saying. Yeah. And I, I think it needs to be more than just with one person, but like a population like this is, you know, for people who grew up in the 90s, this is what made a classic film. Right. This is what connected with them or the 80s or, or whatever, uh, you know, the the movies that they were watching when the, the the zeitgeist of the moment was coalescing in them. And that's what they remember. You know, they, they say most people stop listening to new music after the age of 30. Right. You sort of formed an opinion at that point of, of what you know, musical genres you want to, to listen to going forward. And sure, maybe you sub, you know, subscribe or listen to some subsets from that genre, but that's sort of where you're locked in. Uh, and I know that's kind of broad, but I think the same thing happens with movies. I think there's a moment in time when you're growing up with whatever media you're consuming, and that sort of becomes the movies that you remember most fondly. And I think that's what makes a classic film. And so, so you think every generation will have, it sounds like basically, and it, it's probably a true statement, their own classic film. Or yeah, films, absolutely. And right? I, you know, it, it speak uh, to them. at some point, someone said, oh, you know, Citizen Kane is a classic film. Great. Cool. I love Citizen Kane. I've watched it probably two dozen times, but show that to someone today and they're probably not going to get the, the same thing out of it that the audience that sought contemporaneous to its release did. Right. Uh, it's just not the same film. It, it doesn't speak to them the same way that, that movie was meant to speak to the audience that was watching it the day that it came out. Um, doesn't mean you can't appreciate it. Doesn't mean that people don't reflect back on it, but it's never going to have, at least by my definition, that same classic appeal to a modern audience as it did to the generation that watched it the first time. You're saying kids today can't draw the correlation between Foster Kane and, and Hearst. <laughs> I disagree. Uh, I think they're I, more I, intelligent. I, I, I'm not trying to. <laughs> if they even know who that, Hearst but... is, I, I, I'll give them a hundred bucks. Fair enough. Yeah. Not true. I won't do that. <laughs> yeah. That, that's that's interesting. interesting. Again, and, I'm not saying they're not appreciated. I just, I just don't know if that, that movie would speak to the a modern audience the same way it would to the people that watched it then. But could you remake well, a movie but, uh, like that here's today? Citizen oh, Kane wasn't popular when it first came out. It had become a classic until later on. It it kind of caught on like a lot of movies do after the fact. Well, well that's uh, a question, right? Is, 
is there a time frame? You know, like like cars. I think what is it twenty years old before it be, you know, can be considered a classic? I mean, my it, research does some time have to pass. The National Film Registry says twenty five years. The National Film Registry says twenty five okay. years. It has to be at least twenty five years old. See, Here's the problem I have with that, though. You go to Rotten Tomatoes, and every freaking movie on there in the top one hundred of classic movies is either the forties, fifties, sixties, and and a couple seventies sprinkled in here and there. Well, and I think that goes back to the fact that you know what. And again, don't want to put words in Tyler's mouth and he can agree or disagree uh, when I'm done here. But I mean, if it's a generational thing that makes it a classic, how can you go 25 years? Because you're looking at a whole new generation at that point. So (laughs) the math doesn't add up to me there. Yeah. Again, I think it goes back to the, the nostalgia factor, which I was mentioning. So this is a generation that's thinking back to the films that formed their opinions that made an influence on on their culture and their zeitgeist when they were growing up. And I don't know if 25 years is some magical number, uh, but I do think there, there probably needs to be some distance between the time the movie was released and between a person looking back and saying it was a classic. Uh, I don't like the idea of an instant classic. I don't think that's actually a thing. Um, so I, I do think there needs to be some, okay. some time and space between when a movie came out and when someone looks Hold back on it. This is a spirited debate, and I feel I feel a I feel a spirited debate coming on then because oh, here we boy. Go. Ba- based based <laughs> on everything I've read, seen, thought about, and felt, is that the two the two main categories aside from the twenty five year whatever the time frame aspect, the two elements in play are emotional resonance and cinematic importance, or maybe even cinematic slash historical <laughs> importance. You could say right by that token. Couldn't one say argumentatively that Black Panther is an instant classic? No. Yeah, he just told you instant classic isn't a thing. Yeah. And it's well, not a Christmas but, film, but, I can but, tell you that much. I mean, <laughs> instant classic is saved for ESPN. That, that, that's their thing, right? Yeah. It, and Tyler, so you know, that, that's a little bit of the humorous reference we use because ESPN has their instant classics, which is why we were joking like, can you have one? Of yeah. like it just hits the market. I mean, it, like, right. I mean, I guess a recent example might be Avatar. Of it was just such a big production, it kind of set the bar in terms of but, income, you know, worldwide. The, and, and I'm just, I'm just using it as an example. I'm not making the argument for or against. You could say Avengers Endgame by by that token. Yeah, but let, let, let me let me ask you this. I mean, is anyone still going to be talking about Black Panther 25 years from now? Maybe the answer is yes, but I think that would be a question or even 10 years from now. Um, would they still be talking about this? You know, uh, I think something that you could point to relatively recently was um, uh, Game of Thrones. I mean, look how uh, that was such a cultural phenomenon when it was on. And then, for better or worse, I think people felt betrayed by the, the last season. Sure. When was the last the time you, you heard anyone talk about Game of Thrones? Even the memes uh, have disappeared. Uh, and yet something like Lord of the Rings, that's still being used in memes and, and the cultural consciousness at large. And that's truly a classic, whereas I think Game of Thrones has been proven to, you know, to sort of just been a, you know, a little blip of anomaly where people were there for it because there was nothing else against it as far as programming went and we've moved on i think you'd say the same thing about avatar to be perfectly honest uh if disney wasn't continually trying to prop it up uh through their theme parks um i think that movie would have just disappeared into an existence sure it made a lot of money at the time and it pushed 3d technology which you know who's using 3d anymore 
Um, I think it was just a, again, an anomaly that was culturally significant for a moment, but I wouldn't call it classic because it hasn't stood this test of time. Yeah, no, and I and I agree with you on that one, Tyler, for sure. Because Avatar, cinematically, I guess, or visually, was a fantastic movie. Um, the storyline, I probably couldn't even tell you what the story was really about. It's about a bunch of blue people riding. In a horses. word, I don't know, right? I mean, in a word, and I can tell this you. is why we can't show <laughs> Citizen Kane nowadays. Ahead of its time. <laughs> What's that, Grinch? I said, we just answered Thor's question about, no, we cannot watch Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane okay, nowadays. Right. <laughs> Mac, Mac, if, if you think about it, Avatar was Pocahontas. Or, it, or Dances with Wolves. Yeah, I mean, it was that storyline just regurgitated right. in a different way with really spectacular visuals. That was it. It was not an original story. I, I mean, I think for me, maybe something that you could latch on to as far as like a classic is something that kind of transcends time. Um, and something I would look at maybe, you know, for better or worse, is the movie A Time to Kill. I'm sure a lot of us remember that. Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of that stuff, you know, you, you could put that movie on today and I think it would still resonate with, you know, all of our children um, because that, that, that's the kind of stuff that unfortunately still happens today. Mm -hmm. So, so, so is, I, that why, is that why when I, when I look at the top 100 movie classics, I'm seeing movies from like, like I said, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, right? Is it because there's only seven story archetypes? And so everything that's come after that is just a redo. It's a repeat just told in a different, you know, younger, hipper, more te technological version of something that, that came before it. Oh, I mean, why are we why are we not seeing things that are clearly 25 years old, but don't fall in those latter categories moving into a classic movie uh, 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 moniker. Well, I think we're also constrained by the people that are creating those lists. Uh, and I think for better or worse, there is a, a generation of people who, you know, uh, went to college for film theory or film production, and they were taught out of books by professors who grew up with those movies. That was, uh, you know, 25 years prior to them starting to teach. So I, I don't know if there has been enough scholarship done in the last 20 years to update those lists necessarily to where it has penetrated the academic realms where people are being taught these things. So um, I don't know, that's just a, a, a hypothesis, but uh, I still think if a film cannot stand the test of time, then it's probably not a classic by any means. So perhaps there just hasn't been enough time uh, it's elapsed from films that came out in the, the 80s, certainly the 90s or the 2000s that we can look back on and say, no, no, that was a classic, uh, at least definitively the way we could with a, a film like a, again, like a Citizen Kane or a Wizard of Oz, which, you know, clearly has had a huge effect on cinema at large that is that has stayed with filmmakers almost 100 years later. Yeah, so, Mac, and if you're going to pull a McConaughey film that you want to talk about being a classic that kids can identify <laughs> with, make it dazed and confused, not yeah, a time to all kill. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Um, oh, go ahead, Mac. No, no go ahead, Grinch. I, no, I'll go ahead. <laughs> See what happens. No, what do we Tyler? do? We're, we're all uh, really on our best behavior when Tyler shows up. So uh, I, I'm agreeing I think with everything you said um, and anything that follows isn't a counterpoint, it's more maybe to just flesh out the idea a little bit better. Um, so, I, I mean, I think what we said was stand the test of time, but we didn't specify the time and we didn't agree or disagree with the 25 year mark. Um, but, you know, as you 
maybe scan back in time through, let's say, maybe starting in 2000, just a rough milestone. Do you think there are any movies that are within that time frame from 2004 that are now, you know, classics? Man. And I know that's an on the spot question, so it's not very fair. Wow. Just, yeah. yeah, that was kind of um, mean. <laughs> wow. And I'll throw out like, and actually, I can't even remember what year this was. I guess it was pre-2000. Like, as a Forrest Gump, for example. Yeah, that was like a 94. Yeah, see, for me, I would yeah, say. Titanic, you know, something like that. Maybe I went back into the mid-90s, you know, but yeah. that's what I'm wondering. For me, Ooh. I would say that Forrest Gump would probably be a, considered a classic, maybe. And, and I'll let Tyler weigh in on this, too, in just a second. Only because that can speak to multiple generations, the way the movie was filmed, right? I mean, it went through several periods of time. So you can sit down with, you know, grandma, mom, and you know, child, and they can all take something out of a movie like that, right? Yeah, and, it, and as we're buying Tyler a little bit of time on that question. That's, that's what I was trying to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, other, the other random thought I had was I was trying to remember, I think Titanic is the first movie I remember that had an intermission. Really? Because it's you and I point, saw it I guess, in a different theater. I was going to say I didn't see it in the theater, so I don't know. I didn't. Get it. Well, it was like three hours, it. right? Three hours and some change. It had the two VHS tapes, but um, it's did you just point, say VHS? I did. It was two <laughs> wow. tapes. It was. Hey, hey, in case anybody's wondering, those are cassette tapes that you put I, into a VCR. I, I, I aged myself. I, I dated myself. <laughs> I did. Um, but. I'm if off, they don't know what a VHS tape is, they're not going to know what a VCR is, Mac. I'm just going to tell you that. Be sure to rewind before you return, right? Um, Be what, kind, please rewind. What I was thinking about, too, is I don't know if this matters, but it used to be a movie was, what, like 90 minutes? And then at some point, two hours plus became kind of the new baseline. And then you started seeing push into three, you know, with some of these big, big productions. And I just wonder if length of time of the movie also factors into like, oh, God, like, like, I mean, the Lord of the Rings series, if you watch like the director's cut and all that, whew, like you're, you're committed. <laughs> well, Zack Snyder's abomination Justice League was four hours and two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> fucking ridiculous and <clears throat> didn't progress the storyline in any way, but just added another two hours to the movie. And I thought it was it was insane to sit through. So I don't know if that bought you any time, Tyler. Yeah, well, it did. So while, while you were saying that, I pulled up like five different lists from. He's been Googling. Diligently. Different magazines. It's like, well, what the hell actually came out since 2000 or the last three decades, let's say. I'm going through these these top lists of movies. And it is really difficult, even from very popular films that I think we've all seen, like The Poor Identity or something like that. I could honestly say any of these were classics. Um, I just don't know if 20 years from now, people are still going to be talking about these movies in an academic sense. I think in a fun way, some of these movies will, will continue to, to be on people's lists. But what makes a film classic, I think, uh, is, is what, it, what its effect was on the generation that watched it and how people talked about it afterwards and if it made any lasting impact on the visual medium itself. And I think the last film that, that you could say was a true classic in the sense that it, it was a defining moment in film might be the Blair Witch Project as I'm going through all of these uh, various lists of films that have come out in the last 30 years. And I personally don't even like the Blair Witch Project. I have never <laughs> liked that film, uh, but it created a genre out of whole cloth 
uh, right? The found footage genre did not exist prior to that film. Um, so in terms of a, a classic, quote unquote, classic film that had a lasting impact, you can blame the Blair Witch Project for better or worse for an entire genre of films that is still going on today. Uh, so I think you could absolutely say Blair Witch Project is a classic film. Uh, but are the Harry Potter films classics? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't think enough time has passed. Uh, and looking at this, this list of films, I just am not seeing a whole lot that jumps out, to be perfectly honest. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe filmmakers were just better 50 years ago, which is why we, we call well, them. Well, it, yeah, and I, I guess that was going to be my question. Is it, it, so has the golden age of, of film come and gone? I mean, are we not? I mean, you look at the amazing technology, you look at the amazing budgets and the scenery and, you know, in some cases, even the story writing and even the acting is way better than what you're getting in these quote unquote classic movies. And yet they still seem to be running tried and true through and through the thirties, forties and fifties and sixties. I mean, that that's just what's there. And, and it's, Look, and they're all movies, I, most of them I've seen, and most of them I would consider to be, in my opinion, classics. But I think there's other ones up there, too. And so, yeah, that was my question, I guess, is have, have, has the golden age of, of film just passed, passed by before we were here? No, I don't think so. I mean, there's still really great directors. I mean, uh, we were talking about Tenet. Um, look, I didn't like the movie, but Chris Nolan is definitely an Artur director. There's no one that sits in front of Tenet and watches it and says this was directed by anyone other than Chris Nolan, right? He's got such a, a definitive thumbprint creatively on the movies he makes. So there's still plenty of really amazing filmmakers working out there. I think uh, what has changed is the landscape in which we watch films, right? Now you can have so many diversified channels speaking to one type of audience or one type of genre uh, that the numbers of people are not collectively watching the same amount of movies or the same types of movies together anymore, right? So like in the, the quote-unquote classic age of film, people were still going to cinema palaces, right? Uh, and it was still a, a thing where the, the family all went together and they'd sit down afterwards and talk about the movie um, I think that's why it had more of a, a cultural anchor on the people that were watching those films at the time is because they were actually talking about them. Uh, now I can I go into work and I'll, I'll see one of my coworkers and I'll, hey, have you seen this movie? And I realized just when I bring that up, like, wait, I'm subscribing to a channel that I think has like 35 followers, right? Like no one else is watching this film except for me and you know, two other people. So it's just not going to have that same cultural resonance as like a Wizard of Oz did. Um, I don't know if that's that's it's better or worse. I think it's giving people platforms to be more risky in the types of films they're making and and uh, what they're they're talking about in their films, but at the risk of fewer and fewer people watching these films. Um, I really like Shutter as a uh, as a channel that I subscribe to, and mainly because they play really bad, horrible, old. Uh, horror movies that you just can't find anywhere. A lot of stuff that's just, you know, disappeared from, from our time and space. But uh, if they have a million people that subscribe to that channel, I would be shocked. I'd be absolutely shocked if any people tune into Shudder. Um, so there's things I watch in there that I know no one else and I will ever run into uh, will ever see that film. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I'm not sure. Um, but I think that might explain why uh, the, the quote unquote golden age of film has, has come and gone uh, to a certain extent, is that we just don't collectively watch films the way we used to. 
Well, yeah, that's a great point. It, I didn't I didn't think about it that way, but you're right. We're being over inundated with information, and and it wasn't. I, I okay. Yeah, I get it. That, that's a great point. I didn't think about that. Sorry, Mac. No, no, no. Well, and I think you you know we've talked about a couple points here that kind of bring this back around. You know, the golden age of film. You know, I know a lot of people talk about the golden age of television. Um, you know, you look at shows like Breaking Bad and Mad Men um, that, that were considered. You know, I don't want to say classics, but but very good TV shows has the you know the extents of movies as far as going you know to, to two three four hours you know pushed us back to tv where you know our our attention span is not what it used to be and we just want that quick you know without commercials 40 minute you know tv show every week um that we can digest and you know move on um yeah. you know has, has that kind of pushed movies out and brought television to the forefront a little but then bit, i maybe. think you can argue with streaming services i mean there's a reason why why people you know quote unquote binge watch movies it's not necessarily the length of time that they're watching a film or a tv series it's are they connecting with the material and do they want more uh so much so that i think that's why you're seeing streaming services move away from the uh the the, the season dumps that they used to do where people can binge watch a series right that's why, you know, like Disney Plus, you have to tune in every week to see the next episode. It doesn't come out in one big release because they realize that, holy crap, we can't monetize this the way we can traditional TV, right? People are yeah, going to just straight pisses me off. By well, the way. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got, you know, spoiled with, you know, being able to watch, you know, an entire season in a weekend. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. But I think it, it, it moves people back to shows being an event right like everyone's waiting for for 10 p.m on a friday or a thursday or whenever the the series they're they're attached to comes on like this is stupid but i love curse of oak island which is objectively a, just terrible theories uh they haven't found anything on that damn island in nine years yet i tune in <laughs> every tuesday religiously uh to the discovery channel to, so to watch it and it's something that that me and my wife do uh and then there's other series like, let's say, The Mandalorian. All right. A great example. You know, you watch the, the new episode and you go into work the next day and you talk about it. And it's a thing. Right. It becomes right. a uh, an actual moment in time that you, you want to enjoy with people. Uh, and that's what films used to be. Right. You would go to the theater on a Thursday or a Friday or a Saturday with a bunch of friends and you, you go out to dinner or a bar afterwards. You talk about the movie. And, you know, people ask you on Monday morning, oh, what did you see over the weekend? Like, it was a thing culturally that we did. And I think streaming services are realizing the value of what that brought to an audience. And that's why they're moving back towards it. Yes, it's it's easier for them to monetize a show. But I think just, just pure hype, it builds more by doing it that way. No, and that's, that's a great point. And, and, and I agree with you, right? I mean, I think that that's a good thing, bringing – you know, the family back together or bringing, you know, groups of people back together to, to make those events and something to talk about. Still pisses um, you off, though, having to wait week after week. <laughs> well, well because I'm having to pay now, you know, well, $4.99 a month well, uh, yeah. for two months. Right. So, well, yeah. it, and, and, and this touches on a concept we touched on the last time we were together, which is like what what might fill the theaters back again, which is that desire for a shared experience which we talked about this concept in another, I, I forget which podcast we talked about the pissing me off. It's not all at once. And we were, you know, I think I, I was the one that remarked in some ways, I kind of like having a show to look forward to. Like you, you kind of get excited about it. You know what day of the week it is. Um, but what was on my mind is, you know, it also generates some really interesting spinoff material 
Um, the most obvious one that comes to mind was the talking dead, which followed every episode of the walking dead. Now did you admit, watch that uh, occasionally. Cause I liked Chris Hardwick. Yeah, I did as well. Um, yeah. And, Never watched and it. this is before the walking dead just fucking pissed me off. And I bailed. Cause I was like, Jesus, let's, can we figure this out? I don't care what the source material was. I was just bored with the episode and the, and the drama, but I may be wrong, but I feel like the talking dead, was one of the first versions of that where you basically had a whole hour that followed right afterward. Now what I do like for all the Marvel stuff, like WandaVision Falcon and winter soldiers, I watch the YouTube. There's YouTube streamers that I follow that break down all the Easter eggs and all that. Like that's what I gobble up after they do all like, the commentary post episode. Yeah. They do yeah. the cut scenes. They show like, did you see this detail? Like, I love that stuff. I soak that up all week <laughs> until the next falcon or winter soldier or loki or whatever comes out it's a question i have for you then grinch maybe because you having talked about some of that stuff have you done any of the watch parties i know that during especially during quarantine that kind of became a thing and, and not just for you but for anybody else where I, I guess the premise was you kind of got on i guess facebook live or some sort of a medium and kind of chatted amongst each other during the episode has anybody done something like that and what was your thoughts about it no i yeah. haven't no. They're on Facebook, so Grinch didn't do them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I, I haven't done anything like that. And again, like we we referenced Tenant, like I don't think you could have a watch party on a movie like that because you wouldn't be paying attention to the movie because you'd constantly be going, what the fuck just happened? Well, and I think, yeah, I think the watch parties tended to sh be more around the TV shows, maybe. Oh, okay. Well, um, no, hadn't done that either. So that question completely fell flat. Then I'm going to just yes. go back on mute. <laughs> Moving on. Um you know, and uh, one of the other questions I had specifically for you, Tyler, is because you do sit on the board of Gasparilla Film Festival. And I know just recently they had sunscreen here in St. Pete, their film festival. Last year, you guys did not have this. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I don't believe you had it last year because of COVID. Is that no, right? We, uh, we, we did not. So okay. uh, sunscreen uh, did not either. So the two main... <laughs> People listening, the two main uh, film festivals we have in the Tampa area is the Sunscreen Film Festival, which happens in St. Petersburg, and the Gasparillo Film Festival, that happens in Tampa. Uh, and both of these film festivals, I think, are on their 15th and 16th years, respectively. So they've been around for quite a while as far as our, our market goes. Uh, and both were, were canceled because of COVID. Uh, sunscreen did end up happening at a very reduced capacity in October. They pulled together a very small one. Uh, and then a couple months later, obviously, they, they had a, a their, their proper film festival, which just happened this last week. April. Yeah, uh, yeah. A yeah. End of April, yeah. beginning of May. Yeah. And uh, as far as Gasparilla goes, we we did not have any sort of festival last year. Uh, we will be back uh, this year. In fact, our, our festival is coming back June 14th through the 18th. Uh, so just a couple more weeks away and we'll be back. Uh, but at a much re reduced capacity. Um, you know, uh, like I said, Florida is is widely open for the most part but it's still up to businesses to, to figure out what their own comfort levels are. And I think most theaters are of the same opinion that, you know, they're, they're, they're gun shy and opening up fully. So most are even in Florida are in the, the 40 to 50% range at max and some are still at 30%. Um, so that certainly affected the film festival circuit at large. I know Florida's a little better than, than most States, but uh, film festivals have really taken a hit this last year nationwide. Well, my, my question was, how does that work in terms of having two competing film festivals in such close proximity to each other in this area? I, so I, I, 
There, there is a thing called the Howard Franklin Bridge. Yes, there uh, is. <laughs> and for, for people who don't live in the Tampa Bay area, it, it is a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, what is it? Three and a half, four mile long bridge. Yep. And it is really the only way to get across the bay. There's two other bridges, but they're much smaller and they're, they're further north or south than the, the main expressway. So uh, the reality is, if you're going to Tampa, you're probably going on the Howard Franklin. If you're going to St. Pete, same thing. Uh, and there's been many, many studies done. People from St. Pete do not go over to Tampa. People from Tampa do not go over to St. Pete. They might commute for work, but they will not cross that bridge uh, for you know festivals or, or things that are happening. Uh, no one has cracked that nut yet. Uh, I don't even think the sports teams have, to be perfectly honest. Tampa um, Bay Rays struggle constantly. Yes, they do. Um, and I, I think it's because there's just that weird mental block for people that live in the Tampa Bay area that they just don't want to drive over that bridge. So uh, to answer your question, as much as we'd like to think that the two markets cross-pollinate, they really don't. Uh, there's certainly some some diehard film fans that will, will come to both, but um, really the two festivals are servicing the markets in which they take place in. So there's not it's, there's no competition in terms of of draw or anything like that for you guys because no there's certain there's certainly competition for movies um, we will end up inevitably playing a lot of the same films during the day but what sells tickets uh, in most normal years and this is true for any film festival is whatever the evening movie is right what's the big tent pole for the night uh, and that extends both from the the opening to closing night movie and everything in between it's that eight o'clock film what are you playing. Uh, and you want to be able to put on your marketing materials that it is a a world first or a state first or a regional first. Uh, you don't want to be copying other people's content. So during the year, it is a constant fight amongst film festivals to try to book the best films that they can that are either unique or first runs so that they can have that that claim that, hey, you can only see it here. Uh, so that's one of the areas I think we do compete heavily with with sunscreen is just figuring out what those opening, closing and, and 8 p.m. movies are. So ideally, you want to come first in the year. Uh, not necessarily. Uh, okay. I don't. It's not so much the date. It's, you know, what is the cloud of the festival? How much money are you willing to spend? Uh, dirty secret. A lot of films are licensed at film film festivals, particularly the uh, the evening films or the, the higher end films, they've already had their, their festival play at, you know, Toronto or Sundance. They don't need your festival. Um, so at that point, they, they switch over to more of a licensing uh, approach where you're reaching out to the distributor and negotiating from there. Um, uh, you know, I, as much as I love the, the Sunscreen Film Festival and Gasparilla Film Festival, playing at our festivals isn't necessarily going to uh, get you an Oscar. Um, so it's, it's not the same level as a, a Sundance or, you know, a, again, like a, a Toronto. So it really just becomes down to negotiations and how much money you're willing to spend for particular films. Okay. Well, I, yeah, again, I saw that it was coming up in June and I was just, I was curious. I'm like, I didn't even think about that in terms of the proximity of, of both festivals to each other and even both festivals in terms of the calendar year this year. I was like, yeah. I wonder if that's a, an issue in terms we're, of putting on a festival. We're always really close. Uh, it's not just us. You know, Sarasota Film Festival happens, the Florida Film Festival, um, the Dunedin Film Festival, uh, the Jewish Film Festival. They all take place within two months of each other. So it's, they're all very tightly packed. Okay. Um, well, I, I guess maybe a related question then is, is kind of the state of the movie world. You know, if, if theaters are struggling to get anything on screen, 
what's what's that landscape look like as you're trying to find good candidates for your festival? Well, it's been really difficult. So a lot of what we'd call, you know, festival type films, uh, films that are uh, looking to go the festival route to find distribution or to find a fan base uh, before they hopefully get picked up. Um, you know, they're, they're hedging their bets. You know, they would normally like to go to a larger festival first because a lot of these larger festivals only want first run materials. So if you are playing at Sundance, it's because it is never played anywhere else. That is a Sundance exclusive. Uh, same thing with, you know, um, Telluride or the Berlin Film Festival or any of the, your top film festivals, right? So there's a lot of filmmakers who are just sort of sitting back south by Southwest. Uh, they're, they're sitting back and waiting to put their films out or submit their films because they're waiting for these larger festivals to come back um, to have a chance at maybe getting into one of those first. So that's hurt. Uh, and then we've also seen an issue with films that, um, you know, because of the pandemic, they didn't want to wait and they've put them out to distributors and now distributors are trying to figure out what to do with those movies and festivals might not be the route that the distributor wants to take at this point. Uh, and that's also been an interesting uh, conversation too, not to change the subject too much, but um, you know, people thought that independent films would see a, just a huge surge during the pandemic uh, on streaming services. And that wasn't the case. And it was because you had major studios like uh, uh, Warner brothers saying, Nope, we're going to put all of our movies on streaming services. And that made the streaming services spend a ton of money to acquire first run blockbuster films, right? Money that they would have normally been spending on independent films to flesh out their rosters. Now, all of a sudden they're having to spend an extra hundred million dollars to say that they're playing Wonder Woman or whatever it is, right? So that's actually really, really hurt in the short term, the independent film market. And that ultimately trickles down to, uh, to festivals as well. That's interesting. So the, those independent films thought that they would actually gain traction. But when someone like a Warner Brothers does that and other streaming services have to pick up A-list type movies, now the independents get pushed, I'm assuming. Right, because they, the, they don't have the money to purchase those smaller films because, you know, let's I'm just making up a number, but let's say they had $100 million to spend on independent films and now they need to spend $200 million to get this exclusive big name movie, whatever that is. Well, that money is now being spent in that movie and not those independents. So independents actually got screwed this last year. Damn. Yeah. Uh, you know, seeing and we talked about this when you were here last time, you know, everybody was kind of excited about Dune and its release. And now I guess it's getting pushed to HBO October beginning or middle of October. I mean, I have to assume that's that's going to have an impact in terms of what that movie would have potentially earned in a completely open theater and I'm not sure seeing it on my on my TV hanging on my wall is going to be the same as seeing it in a theater. So I'm I'm a little concerned about what that that yeah. is going to be like. I believe it's going to be a simultaneous release. But uh, to your point, um, it's not so much of a big deal for Warner Brothers because they own HBO. Right. And it's a loss leader for them. So they're just trying to, to get people over to their their new streaming platform, which is HBO Max or Plus or whatever the hell it is. Um, but for the producers, right, the people that actually put money in to make this movie, they were expecting a huge opening weekend, right? They were expecting this to be the theater film that people were going to return to the theaters for. And by undercutting that, uh, WB undercutting that by putting it on an HBO, that is really pissed off the producers, not just for this film, but many films that have gone this route uh, that they're saying they're getting absolutely hosed with no support from WB. Um, so that's that's really soured a lot of the producers and creatives 
I think, to working with Warner Brothers because they don't want to be put in that situation. I mean, I'm sure Kong versus Godzilla would have made a bazillion dollars in the theater, but, you know, unfortunately, it, it just got released. A lot of money. Like, I think it made over $100 million. I haven't checked the box offices this week, but uh, it, it did pretty, pretty well, all things considered. And I did see that in the theater. I, I was that, happy to see it. That director is going to do Thundercats, so who cares? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, we'll see. So it hasn't happened yet. So uh, I know we we did kind of a touch point uh, with you of kind of where you think you know the the broader the film community might go. Has has your thinking on that changed since when we last spoke? Of you know I, I you know and I know it's it's best guess with tea leaves kind of thing, um, and it still is now. But um, has any of your thinking that we discussed last time changed? No, I, I still think that that streaming services are just going to continue to to gain momentum. Uh, I think theaters were were already in decline before the pandemic. This just accelerated things. Um, there's going to be some significant casualties, I think, in the theater market over the next couple of months, if not next couple of years. That is going to be just you know impacted again and again and again by by this last year from COVID. Um, it, theater's not going away, though. There will always be theater movies. I mentioned this last time. Uh, I think it's just going to go back to how movies, movie chains used to be. They were owned by the studios uh, themselves, you know, vertical integration. So, you know, Warner Brothers are going to have their own theaters. Netflix, Amazon, they're going to have their own theaters. Uh, because I do think there's an interest to see certain types of films in theaters. Uh, I actually, you know, uh, went to see The Father, um, Anthony Hopkins, which ended up winning the Academy Award. Uh, at Tampa Theater for opening night. I did that to support the theater. I'm a huge supporter of our, our local art house cinema. Um, but did I need to see that movie in a theater? No, there was no difference between watching that movie in a theater or sitting on my couch at home. Uh, whereas a movie like I went to see Mortal Kombat last week, uh, had to turn my brain off for it, but I was glad that I went to see it in, a, in an IMAX theater. That was a lot of fun. It was a movie that needed to be seen in an IMAX to get the full impact of what that movie was supposed to be. Uh, I can say the same thing about uh, King Kong versus Godzilla. Uh, and there will be continuous films like a Dune that you should see in a theater. But do you need a 24 screen multiplex to do that? Nope. You probably can get away with four to six screens. So I think you're going to see just a huge contraction in the number of theaters, the the number of theater chains, and ultimately the number of screens in these, you know, used to be multiplexes. It's interesting and, and you I say that. Bring up a... Please. I digress. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, you I think you bring up a really good point there, Tyler. There, there are certain films, and Thor maybe back to the discussion we had earlier about Tenet. You know, had you seen that in a theater, you know, maybe your no, okay, fine. You know, maybe your opinion would have been maybe, different. Maybe that's not the best example. <laughs> maybe that's not the best example. Um, you know, we go back to Avatar, right? That was a movie that for me, I watched at home. And maybe I missed something having not seen it in a theater. You know, there, there are Tyler, to your points, to your point, movies that you need to see, you know, in that big, you know, the big screen or an IMAX to really get the, the full experience of the movie. They're, they're not, you know, there's not a storyline to them, right? They're, they're visually pleasing. And that's why you have to see them in a theater. Yeah. Yeah, It's an experience. Yeah, because I watched Mortal Kombat on my 16-inch MacBook. <laughs> no. That wasn't that, doing it for you? No, yeah, but I mean, you know, like in Dune, like the, the remaking of Dune. I mean, I'm excited to see that. And I would, I would, 
I don't like going to theater. I've got a nice television, a nice surround sound. I can sit here in my underwear. I can make my own popcorn. I can buy candy for pennies on the dollar. Why would I go to the movie theater? I think I just threw a bullet. However, with that being said, there are certain movies that are worth going to see in the theater. And when a Lord of the Rings or a Hobbit or a Harry Potter or a James Bond movie comes out or Dune, I'm going to the theater for that. Let me tell you a movie not worth seeing in the theater. That would be Hudson Hawk. Just so you know. <laughs> you know, you know what, you you know what it is? You know when it is worth seeing though? When you're sitting stuck in, in traffic. traffic for three hours <laughs> and you got nowhere to go. On an iPad. It works just fine. That's right. We did yeah, have I, our one. Oh, go ahead, Thor. Sorry. No, I was gonna say just one of, of Villeneuve's other movies, which I did see in the theater was Blade Runner 2049. And I was actually I was less impressed uh, from a cinematic standpoint. I thought it needed to be seen on a big screen. Unfortunately, whoever was running the audio in that theater, the music was ramped up way too damn loud. And it just, it was painful to watch. And I actually, I've, I've since watched it at home on my TV and I actually enjoy the movie a lot more, which I thought was weird because I thought seeing it in a theater was going to be perfect for the type of scope that that movie had. But, but I, I feel like you were you were influenced by the the poor quality of the projection of the audio. Yeah. Yeah. It was just <laughs> it was painful. It's like God damn whoever set their levels needs needs work because it was I, I can say the same thing about Hateful Eight, uh which I saw in the uh the roadshow format in the 70 millimeter should have been amazing. I was so excited to see this and they had some poor kid up in the uh the control room that had never run a film plate in his life had no idea what he was doing the film broke three different times the Oof. audio was terrible and i i literally walked out of there like this this could have been a great movie i have no idea because what i watched was trash and it was not the filmmaker's fault it wasn't the movie's fault it was because they just didn't know how to project it correctly so that's yeah, as bad uh, if they don't know what they're doing right yeah and, and that brings up a great point right does your kind of knowledge on film then impact you know when you go to like a movie theater in that situation and you know what it should look like and then you have you know you know in that case maybe a kid up there running the you know the film and the projection and the audio who has completely screwed it up you know I, i gotta feel like that puts you almost at a disadvantage i guess because you know what it should look like Oh, you, uh, you know 100%, 100%. And it makes me, it, well, it does. It just perplexes me when I ask people like, am I the only one seeing that the, the audio is not in sync? Like, why is it so loud? <laughs> right? And everyone's just sitting next to me. It's like, oh, this is amazing. It's like, what the hell? Are you t- You're not seeing the same movie I'm seeing. Uh, that was never more true than when uh, 3D movies were, were first really coming into fad. Uh, and optically in the, uh, the, con- the control room, the projection room. Uh, they had these these extra splitters they were putting in front of the the actual projectors itself, which was helping to to get the 3D effect. But it was laborious to put them on and off. Uh, and what it was doing is, if they were projecting a non 3D film through them, it dimmed the image by like several lumens, and it was so dark and nasty. And it's because they were just too lazy to take the filters off between 3D screenings. Uh, and I was sitting there in the theater. I was like, this is the darkest film I've ever watched. Like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I was like, how do you not see the same movie? <laughs> and I feel oh, like yeah. there's only two people on this call that completely understood everything you just said. That's okay. <laughs> just laugh and you'll be no, fine. It, but it brings me back to a great point. I went and saw Backdraft um, with my father in the theater. And, and for most people who own this uh, podcast, you know, my father was a, was a former firefighter. So having sit there, having to sit there and listen to him 
Yeah, critique. that's not how they would do it. <laughs> no, they wouldn't go into a fire that way. It, it's it's a movie, right? So th that's why it made me think of that when you know, Tyler, you being a a film aficionado, I guess is what I'm going to use here. You know, that that has to be tough sometimes to go into a theater. On a like, you know, yeah, on a technical <laughs> spec, certainly. Um, but as far as like breaking down a movie or overanalyzing it, if it's a good movie. I should not be sitting there with my brain spinning, thinking about, oh, why did they put the camera there? You know, uh, the minute that I start doing that, and I'm detaching myself from the movie. I think that's a failing of the movie itself, right? It's no longer okay. talking to me. It's allowed me enough room to where my brain is going off in a different direction. I'm no longer connecting with the film at that point. So uh, if I am ever in a situation where I am thinking about what's the deeper meaning of this shot or that, it's because the, the movie itself has failed. That was my problem with Tenant. When I and people go, oh, this movie, I watched it and it made me ask so many questions. The problem was the questions I was asking myself is, why the fuck did Nolan do this or why did he do that? And at that moment, I was out of the movie because I wasn't questioning necessarily the storyline or or why it raised questions in that way. It were more technical questions. I was like, I just didn't understand why that was occurring or why he made those choices in his movie. And I was just like, okay that's bad for me i was like okay yeah, yeah i i mean i don't mean this is an insult necessarily to the movie but tenet specifically i think was too smart for its own good uh and i don't even think it was that smart of a movie but i think it tried to be smarter than it actually was uh i could say the same thing about the matrix sequels you know it's just there's a certain point where the psycho babble becomes too much and you are just crushing your movie with extra things that it doesn't need to be crushed by you're getting in the way of your own storytelling right too too clever by half yeah yeah and and i will tell you and again you mentioned like the audio and stuff like that uh when i was teaching film uh student filmmaking like that was one of the things like when you're making like a two to three minute student film uh, you you'd tell students like doesn't matter how good your film is if the audio sucks nobody will sit through it your two minutes will feel like an eternity for some reason the way people train on audio when they're watching some, if it's not synced right, if there's anything out of line, that is the most painful thing when you have to watch a film. I don't know what, it doesn't matter how bad the story is or anything. When it comes to audio, there's, we're just unforgiving. That, that um, is the, the truest thing that has ever been said on any podcast ever. Uh, for, I, I'm part of a lot Whoa. of, I, I, said that. I said that, that was me. His head just grew said that. two times. <laughs> I've worked with a lot of film festivals and I do a lot of film programming, not just me, but, but any filmmaker that, that works for film festivals or has screened films. We'll watch hundreds of movies over the course of a submission season. And I will tell you ubiquitously, whether it's me or any other film programmer, we can tell within three minutes of watching a film if we're going to be able to watch the rest of it purely off of the audio. Nothing will sync a movie quicker than bad audio. Yeah. Uh, and because I'd have students who are like, I think I can make an hour and a half movie. And I'm like, I sat through a two minute film of yours. There's no fucking way. You know, you don't tell them that, but you're like, no. I Just, feel like no. you probably told them that. No. Didn't use on, those man. words. Yeah. No, he, say, he yeah. simply said, your movie sucks. No, no. I mean, you, obviously, you don't what, do that. What but... his mouth said was one thing, what his face said was something else. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but it is painful when you have to sit. And again, like I'm not sitting through hundreds, you know, you have 30 students. And so you're sitting through those films and it's just like, oh, Christ, another one, you know, and it's just like, OK, yeah, it's great. You know, and so but audio, worst thing, hands down. And like, I don't know why we are just we are just unforgiving when it comes to that. So I got one random spot question. <clears throat> 
Is Pulp Fiction a classic? Uh, yes, because I think it it definitively changed the way we think about storytelling in a positive way, right? Like, how do I interlink all of these seemingly unrelated stories and moments to create a, a larger narrative? I think that has had a huge impact in the way screenwriters and filmmakers have approached filmmaking since that movie came out. And it wasn't necessarily created by Quentin Tarantino. Um, I mean, it's been done in the past by other people, whether it was Rashomon or, or going back even further than that. But I think cinematically, he approached it in such a unique and interesting way that it had a huge impact on every filmmaker that came after. Yeah, I was, uh, it, you just made me think of Usual Suspects as well. Just the idea of you don't get it, you don't get the movie linear, you right. know, in a linear yeah, chronological fashion. It's more. I'm going to dole out information and then wrap it all at the end. I, I was just wondering about that because I thought about it when I gave that time block, and I just didn't uh, didn't ask. Well, no, no, that that's a, that's a great example. So, um, or you know, we brought up Tenet, Christopher Nolan. Uh, Memento, say, what about Memento? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there, Sorry, go ahead, Tyler. No, 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 no. I was just going to say there's definitely examples of of directors, even if the the movie itself maybe won't stand the test of time, but the director and their approach to filmmaking perhaps has had a, a classic uh, effect on the way filmmaking and narrative filmmaking has moved forward. Uh, I think there's plenty of people you could point to. Yeah. And I but think Tarantino's to- niche was that nonlinear approach to storytelling, but unlike tenant, the context always kind of held you in place. You still understood the story, even if it was mm-hmm. nonlinear in format. 100%. Yeah. So and and I think and that's where I said way back at the beginning of this, like that was Tarantino shtick. And I think Nolan's just like, I need to be the weirdest fucker on the block. And 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 that's gonna be my thing. Because since the Batman series, the movies that he's made in terms of Inception, Interstellar, and you know, this, it's like, what the fuck? It's like, okay. But I mean, that's his thing, and that's okay. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I like Dunkirk. Uh I, I wanna see him go back to to smaller movies like a memento or a following. Um you know, he's such a strong cinematic storyteller um, that I think in those smaller, more insulated films that are more character driven, I think he shines. So I'd love to see him, you know, go from a $200 million movie back to a $5 million movie and see what he did with that. Can they go backwards? Uh, not according to the studios. Right. But he's you rich know? enough now where he can write <laughs> his own check. No, I- I'm just saying, you know, you come up and you make a, a Blair Witch, you make a $50,000 movie and it makes a shit ton of money. And then, you know, you go on and you start making $300 million budgeted movies or a water world at 500 million, whatever. Can you then at that point, step back and make another $50,000 movie? I mean, would you be able to at that point? I don't know. I think they should. I don't think that, but I think to your point, they, they don't. I mean, uh, look at Josh Trank, uh, that train wreck. Um, you know, he made that one cool little hit $2 million. I think it was even less superhero movie. And all of a sudden they, they, spike him up it's like all right no you're gonna make a 200 million dollar fantastic four film did not turn out very well uh i think people need to graduate as far as their budgets go um and i think that should work in the opposite direction as well where they go back to smaller films when they can uh but problem is is that studios spend a lot of money and they they like their their directors and they like moving forward with the the name attached to that director so can nolan go back and make a Five million dollar movie, sure, but a studio is not going to make him let him do that. Yeah, it's about to say, will they let him? Hmm. So I want to segue into this final question. We mentioned about you. Well, you know, you won't be obsolete in terms of what you do. But on a previous podcast, uh, Grinch had mentioned, you know, having uh, some 
some people from Broadway. And, and one of the things they mentioned was new people getting out of college that want to get into Broadway and get into acting like because of what's happened recently, they are having a tough road to hoe being able to do that. Established actors don't have an issue, you know, but in your industry, in terms of film, what does the job market look like because of what we've gone through over the last year, year and a half and moving forward? If, if places are downsizing, if they're now moving to volumetric studios, as opposed to on location shooting, like what does that mean in terms of the job market for someone, not you, but someone that is say getting out of college and going, I want to, I want to get into the film industry. So what, what kind of Avenue do I need to be looking yeah. at? What should I be focusing on and doing if I want to get into that, knowing that there is an issue right now? So short-term traditional filmmaking has been devastated. Uh, and I think it will continue to be that way for the next 8, 12, maybe 14 months as we, we get past the hurdles of COVID uh, and sizes of, of crews slowly grow to what they, they were. Um, but long-term, people that were going to get traditional film degrees, I would encourage them to, to look into video gaming degrees um, or, or 3D rendering uh, programs where they're, they're learning things like uh, Maya and Unreal. Um, that's where the future of filmmaking is going to be at. It's in post. Uh, and it's the people that are going to be coming out of these programs that are going to get the, the the quickest opportunity to find meaningful employment at a very high level because they have the skill sets that are going to be be needed and, and desired going forward. Uh, you know, there's still a need for people that, that know cameras um, and and, you know, obviously screenwriting and directing and editing. These these are things that that are taught at traditional film schools that will always be in place. But I think there's an opportunity for people that are into robotics. There's more and more robotic cameras coming online um, into uh, 3D modeling and rendering, rigging, um, uh, game creation. That's the future of filmmaking. It really is. Uh, and it's been interesting to see, because I, I, again, I work in a market where we have one of these LED volume um, uh, screens in place the amount of new jobs that are created that did not exist prior um, to facilitate this technology. And they're leaning on people primarily from, again, the video game industry. Uh, and to just be able to get this, this studio up and running, they actually tapped Unreal themselves and got a license through Unreal to call it an Unreal branded studio. Uh, but they instantly hired uh, video game people that have been working on things like Madden and uh, you know the, the upcoming Dragon Age, uh, big games, uh, AAA studio games, and they've been able to poach some top talent to come over from the video game industry to work in a, a new era uh, and a new way that, that people just has not associated with filmmaking before. I think video games were always seen as sort of the bastard child of the entertainment industry, even though they objectively make a hell of a lot more money uh, than the film industry does, but creatively, it's always been sort of poo-pooed. It's, you know, it's a lesser uh, art form, and it's not. And I think that works in reverse as well. So I think more and more people are going to be coming over from, from video games into film, but I think video games themselves are going to become more and more cinematic. And I, I see a convergence point in the next 10 years where films and video games may be indistinguishable from one another and the way we interact with films going back to previous question you know what's the the new new or what's the next thing i think you're just going to see that bleeding of interactivity more and more with movies 
um, where they almost become games in, in a certain sense and vice versa. So I think the two industries are going to merge in an amazing way in the next 10 years. Yeah, I can see production, uh, film production companies like, yeah, you're the redheaded bastard child of the entertainment industry. And now they're like, Hey, remember when I said that? I was just yeah. kidding. Want to come help? <laughs> well, you, you have several people on this podcast happy to hear that as a prediction. Uh, they're Notre Dameus because, yeah, quite a few of us love video games. And and some of these cutscenes that you're seeing in some of these games now are just mind-blowing. Yeah, and again, they're they're limited by the technology that's in the box. But I think as we, we start moving in again to more cloud-based gaming and streaming, um, all those limitations go away. Uh, and all of a sudden, um, you're just going to see this convergence of technology and storytelling and craft uh, that you didn't previously have because they're not limited by the technology anymore. And I think that's really, again, what's going to transform just the entertainment industry at large as soon as technology can get out of the way of the creative process. And whatever you can dream up, as big, as crazy as it might be, you're going to be able to do it. So, well, I don't know where that leaves us, but that was yeah, interesting. Uh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, we we totally sit for, yeah. for hours. Yeah. But uh, yeah, as always, Tyler, thank you for being here. We have eaten up a ton of your time. Appreciate you sharing a drink with us, sharing some insight, uh, you know, just being willing to come on here and, and tolerate the four of us for the last hour and a half. As always, it's been great. Would love to have you back in the future. May have to buy you a bottle of alcohol, though. Hopefully you didn't run through all your gin in the last hour and a half. Uh, no, so. I was actually moderate. I only had two glasses, so not too bad. <laughs> but they were tall glasses. Uh, they were very <laughs> tall glasses. <laughs> But yes, as always, we enjoyed it. So thank you very much. Well, thank you guys for having me on. Anytime, I'll be happy to come back and talk about just about anything. Uh, we're going to remember that. So just be careful. I will reach <laughs> yeah, out to you. I think video, video games has to be the yeah. next one. Next time, it's not movies. We've done movies. We've done film. By all yeah, counts. we did and, actually do one about the power of video games in the market. Yes. It, the numbers are insane. And it's interesting because Mac made this point uh, earlier, or he said it was you know you're an aficionado or because I, I think the implication of what your job is we just naturally assume you're a movie guy but i guess that may not be true right somebody can do your job and be like i don't give a shit about movies it's a job oh, i'm sure there's plenty of people who who do my job that doesn't like movies <laughs> uh but i i happen to like movies but i like a lot of things so no, i just i i think we think it's just a natural progression that you have to be a movie person to do your job but i i'm just I imagine that's not the case. So. At the end of the day, a job's a job. That's right. Uh, so, yes, we will wrap things up there. Tyler, let you get to the rest of your evening. Gentlemen, as always, thank you for being here. It was another great episode, and I look forward to doing it again in the future. Yep. Yes. Tyler, thank you, thank thank you, you Tyler. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. We yep, appreciate yep. it. Yes. Yep. Thank you, sir. Take care. As we wrap things up here, we invite all of our listeners to join the debate by dropping us a line at spirituddebates at gmail.com. You can send in topics you'd like us to debate, drink recipes you'd like us to try, or just general feedback on how to make the show better. And don't forget, you can always follow us on Instagram or Facebook at A Spirited Debate or on Twitter at Spirited Debates. Feel free to press follow, like, subscribe, whatever the fuck you got to do. And if you don't, as I said at the beginning, we're just happy that you're here listening and we hope that you continue. Until next time, yeah. we'd like to say Roast Empire. Salute to Why? Cheers, gentlemen. Thank you. Very much. <laughs> 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 <laughs>